Friends, one of the joys and the delights of following in the journey that we've made using the scriptures from what's called the narrative lectionary is that some of those scriptures are long. And so as I have said before, we try to take as much as we can in any single Sunday morning service, but know that if you want to continue exploring with us, this is one of those long passages, if you want to continue exploring with us, there are some guides that we have out in the narthex and the the welcoming table there, um, and we have a Bible study that meets every Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock here at the church to explore all throughout the scripture. And so we encourage you to join us for that and to use those guides for personal reflection as well. But there is some wonderful insight and things for us to find in the scripture today. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. There once was a church much like this one, though not this exact church, you understand. This is a story and a story that probably never happened in an imaginary church that probably never existed that is nevertheless everything you would expect an imaginary church to be. There was once a church much like this one. And the church was committed to trying new things to connect with their community. And so when they learned once that a well-known Christian leader and preacher was planning travels through their neck of the woods, they arranged to be included on this teacher and preacher's schedule, and they planned a special evening worship service around this guest preacher. And in preparation for the service, the church worked hard to invite everyone that they could. They posted signs around town, they put it out on social media, and they made as many personal invitations as they could to friends and neighbors and any poor, unsuspecting soul who happened to be waiting in line in front of them at the grocery store. And so it was that when the day finally came, it was going to be a full sanctuary. And so there was a team of volunteers from the church who were there early to get everything ready and make everything as hospitable as possible for all the new guests who would be at church that day. And while they were working, cleaning, and prepping, this team of volunteers were told to mark the seat next to the aisle in the very back of the sanctuary as a reserved seat. See, they were told one of the church members had made a special invitation to a neighbor who was somewhat apprehensive about attending that service, though they wanted to because this man occasionally had significant seizures. And so the church member had promised to save him a seat next to the aisle at the very back of the sanctuary, so to limit any sort of injury and embarrassment if he were to have a seizure during the service. Now, having heard this, the volunteer team wanted to go above and beyond in hospitality. They would save that requested seat, but then one of them thought they remembered that when someone had a seizure, you're supposed to hold them down and put something in their mouth to bite on to try to keep them from injuring themselves. Now, it should be said that this was the point at which the hospitality team's enthusiasm outpaced their knowledge, because handling seizures like this actually can cause more significant injuries, and the most effective approaches involve clearing the area of anything sharp or dangerous, putting something soft or flat like a folded jacket under the person's head, staying with them, and calling 911 if the seizure lasted longer than five minutes. But the volunteer team was unaware of this, and so they made plans to do what they thought was right, and they picked their four burliest members to be ready to hold their guests down on the ground should a seizure strike. But they weren't sure what exactly to put in this man's mouth, and so they puzzled over it for a few minutes. Then one of the volunteers had an idea. 
And he said, you won't like it, so I'm not going to tell you, but it will work. And no one was exactly sure what to make of this, but they had no better ideas, and so the fifth volunteer joined the first four, and they sat close to the chair next to the aisle in the back of the sanctuary, and they watched as the room filled up with people as the service was about to begin, but the reserve chair stayed conspicuously empty. And it wasn't until after the service had already started when a man quietly, timidly perhaps, walked in and sat in the designated seat. It came time to sing, and so the congregation was invited to stand and sing together, and everyone did, and no one seemed to notice that the chair of such special note, the one next to the aisle in the very back of the sanctuary, was accidentally pushed to the side. And so it was that after they sang and everyone was invited to sit again at the conclusion of the song, the man who was at that very special seat had no chair underneath him, and so fell to the ground with a colossal commotion. And this, the five volunteers, figured must be the signal they had hoped not to receive and yet received just the same, and so they leapt into action. The four pinned this man's arms and legs down to the ground, and then the fifth grabbed a slim black leather red letter edition of the Holy Bible, one donated to the church by Miss Barbara Hightower 20 years prior. And this fifth man slid the holy scriptures into the mouth of a man who is now writhing and screaming under these five hospitality volunteers. The man resisted, but these five persisted. They were sure they were saving his life. And the commotion went on for a few minutes until the man was able to break free from underneath all five of these volunteers and rushed out the door, leaving his coat behind. And so after the service, the hospitality team tried to return the coat. They found the member who had invited the man and found the address of the man, and they went to his house to discover that the man who experiences seizures had not been able to attend the service. The man they had pinned to the ground, the man who had choked for a moment on a slim black leather red letter Bible donated to the church by Miss Barbara Hightower 20 years prior had been a completely unsuspecting visitor to the church. I cannot imagine how this poor visitor might tell his story of his first visit to this church. And so I suppose that if there are any morals to this story, there might be three. First is that if you are visiting a church for the first time, don't sit in the seat next to the aisle in the very back row of the sanctuary. And to be frank, maybe you should avoid the back row altogether. And second is that when people talk about churches that try to force their religion down their throat, you should know that every once in a long while, it's more than just a metaphor. And finally... We should know that there are times when well-meaning people of faith trying to save someone's life might nearly do them in instead. The church universal has struggled with this throughout its history, going so far at times in the Middle Ages as to coerce confessions of faith by stacking rocks on their would-be converts' chest and removing them only when they professed a faith in Christ or could no longer breathe. There are times when well-meaning people of faith trying to save someone's life might nearly do them in instead. And while it might seem unimaginable that we good Christians now or ever would believe in taking such drastic measures, well, we might be able to understand the motivation nonetheless. 
Go in through the narrow gate, Jesus says. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road is wide so many people can enter through it. Here and throughout the whole of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus does not shy away from imagery of destruction. Whether we would wish for it or not, Jesus tells us again and again that what he has to offer is of the utmost importance to the life of every person who has ever lived. There is life and freedom and forgiveness and hope and peace on the path he invites his followers to join him on, and the alternative is not very good. And so we can understand the motivation to save lives, but a strong motivation to save lives doesn't mean that we can or should go about it in any way imaginable. Just moments before teaching about the gates, Jesus tells a story. Imagine, he says, that you have noticed a splinter in a brother or sister's eye, but are willingly oblivious to a full two-by-four protruding out of your own eye. Can you imagine how it would go if you were to attempt to remove your brother or sister's sliver. And I mean, surely we can. I mean, we've been on one side of this operation or the other at least once, I'm sure of it. And so we can picture how good old plank eye would leap into action at the very first sign of the tiniest sliver, oblivious, of course, to where it came from and never even imagining that it could have come off of the long beam of wood he's been waving around out of his eye for days. And so Plank Eye would proclaim with great delight that they are an expert sliver picker, that they have been doing it all their life. And indeed, they surely have. And they're sorry if it hurts, but they insist that it must be done. It's for their own good. And so good old Plank Eye would lean in to help, but would whack their patient across the head and across both of their eyes with the two-by-four. And the patient's bleeding face and blinding pain can only mean to Plank Eye that the operation was a success. And so they would leave believing that a good thing had been done. Oh, because there are times when well-meaning people of faith trying to save someone's life might nearly do them in instead. You deceive yourselves, Jesus says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's or sister's eye. Operation splinter removal is an important one, a necessary one, which means that it must be done right. Like a surgeon who scrubs their hands before a delicate operation, the one who helps another must scour their own soul before daring to meddle in the soul of another. Just before this story, Jesus instructs us not to judge one another, though it's hard to understand what this can mean when we are taught elsewhere to spend so much time discerning good behavior from bad, and we are instructed in plain language to share the good news of the gospel with those who need it. And we cannot effectively witness to the world with eyes so firmly shut that we, uh, so, that are shut so firmly that we cannot act. We cannot witness to the world when we keep our eyes firmly shut because we don't want to dare to judge the life of anyone else. But those who have spent time in the Christian faith know well that there's judging and then there's judging. There's discernment and then there's condemnation. So it may be helpful that the word used here in the Greek for judge is the one most commonly used for eschatological judgments, which is to say for condemning someone to hell. That is not our job 
nor should we want it to be. God alone is the final judge, and so we are never to abandon or write off someone as if we knew the judgment that the good and generous God on high might make. And frankly, this makes it all the more important to figure out the best methods for splinter removal. Because if we're not casting anyone aside as too far gone, then we should be figuring out how best to help. But even pearls of wisdom aren't helpful in every situation, and so we should proceed with compassion and consideration. We who have had planks removed from our own eyes should know well that the grace and kindness, the gentle touch and the compassionate care that aided us so well in our own recovery should also be used when we seek to handle the injury of another. And if we can see that our own recovery with unimpeded vision did not come in a moment but on a journey, then we know something all the more important. Go in through the narrow gate, Jesus says, but then he continues, the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road difficult, so few people find it. There is not just a gate, but a path. And so the entrance into the full life that God offers us is found along the way and not just at some checkpoint where they'll offer us a multiple-choice test of our faith. The Sermon on the Mount hardly touches on belief. From the start until the end, Jesus spends the whole time talking about what we do and how we live our lives. And it's not because belief doesn't matter, but that it is very much not enough on its own, that in fact, a belief truly held is naturally expressed in our behavior. And so Jesus says later, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise builder of a house. It's the combination of hearing and practicing, believing and living that Jesus is leading us to. And so the narrow narrow nature of the gate may not be meant as an expression of some set of narrow beliefs we must hold, but in fact be an inability to carry anything else with us on that path. We cannot believe that anything else will save us, cannot hold on to anything else for our security or salvation except for Christ who pulls us onward. Jesus wants us to know now at the start, that it's a long journey, a lifelong process of change and transformation, one that requires commitment and discipline, but not one that is long and hard because we have to change ourselves, but because we are offering ourselves to the one who changes us all. Taken all together, the Sermon on the Mount seems darn near impossible. There's too much to be done, to be, to become But God gives good things to those who ask. God opens the door to those who knock. God stands waiting for those who seek the unchanging and transformative presence of the divine. Ours is just to ask, just to knock, just to seek, just to put one foot on the rocky path in front of us and see where it will lead. One foot along the way and God gives a good gift to cherish and to share. It might be that Operation Sliver Removal, our response to the motivation of the narrow gate and the looming destruction outside of it, is to see the gift that we have been given and see what it might be to share it. Instead of pinning someone down, we might open the door to our houses when the storm clouds are looming and the ground begins to shake. 
We might open our doors and say, come on in to all those passing by. Stay a while. You'll be safe here. You'll be loved here. And then when the clouds dissipate and the sun returns, we can offer our hands to help with what we have had done for us and what we have learned to do ourselves, which is to remove logs from eyes and build houses and lead the way down a rocky path through a narrow gate. Come, we might say, we once were blind, but now we see. We know a strong foundation to build on. Let's walk this way together. And so Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, and the crowds are amazed at these teachings. They are amazed at Jesus, who once standing and teaching is now on his way down the mountain. And the ministry and the life and the way is about to begin. And the reader is left to wonder, will the crowds follow on this narrow path through the narrow gate? And will we? May it be so. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship as we sing together.